Thank you, Scott, and thank you, guys. If you ever get a view of God, as was described in the verse, then you will do, as the chorus said, stand in awe of the Lord and His majesty and His love and His gifts to us, His goodness to us. You will stand and worship and praise, and it goes so well with our text and our first point this morning. Well, I, I had planned to uh, for this to be the second Sunday in the study on the book of First Peter, but uh, since I was in Asheville last week with Michael, my son who had emergency surgery and somewhat of a, a normal disease that several of you have struggled with, Crohn's, this was a severe case and the doctors repeatedly said they'd never seen anything like it. Um, so thank you so much for your love and prayers and support. Michael sensed it uh, very much as well as as did I also for your support for us last week up there. But I was there last week. Next week, Justin McRoberts is going to be here singing special. So I don't want to just hit it one time and then come back to it. I Today is going to be a follow-up of sorts on Sean's message last Sunday about the church of, of, of which Jesus is the head and the builder. Um, how do you want Grace Community Church to be known? People know us as one thing or another. How would you want us to be known? I mean, I think we would all want people to know us as a friendly place where visitors are welcome and, and brothers and sisters in Christ are served by the members here and, and all feel like they're vital members of the family. I mean, all of these are noble and godly sentiments. And Scripture gives us the how-to or how we're to interact with God and with one another. Our text in is Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It points us to the place uh, that we need to be. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you would please stand as we read Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, curtain that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word that we are told in this same book is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it divides, it discerns thoughts, intentions, and, and motives and motivations. And it, 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 it pierces us, Lord, to the very core of our being. And we pray that that's exactly what it would do this morning. And that it would be a lovely cut, not a painful one, but a cut that produces life. Open our hearts to you as we think about coming with open hearts and open arms. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. 
Well, there's no question that this is a theologically rich passage. Just these few, just these few words that we read this morning. It would be difficult to pull them out and just look at them separately without context. One day we'll possibly get to this passage where we go deep into the understanding all that we need to understand about the Old Testament and the sacrificial system uh, and the context of the book of Hebrews as a whole. This is not going to be that day. There will be a little bit of context brought. We're going to look at some of the verses earlier in this chapter. But our primary focus this morning is our relationship with God the Father, our relationship to one another, and our relationship to those who are outside, not only outside the church, but outside the body of Christ, outside the church of God, the body of Christ. So that pretty much covers all of our relationships, I would think. God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and and everybody else. How we handle those relationships determines who we are as a church. It's not left to us, though, to define what those relationships look, look like. Fortunately, though, God has given us very clear instruction about how we are to interact with Him and with others. So we're going to begin by thinking about being a church with open hearts and open arms to God through Jesus. Coming to the Father through Jesus is not only a primary theme, in the book of Hebrews, it's, it's ultimately the theme of the New Testament. Now, Jesus has seen plenty in the Old Testament, but it's only in retrospect, it's only in looking back that His image is crystal clear to us. The prophets will be told in the book of First uh, Peter when we get to it, inquired, who, am, who are we prophesying about? Who am I writing about, Lord? And they were told that it was not for them, but it was for us that they were serving, those of a later date. This will all be clear later. You just write what I tell you to write. It's basically what the Lord told them. So we look back and we see Jesus, but but it's crystal clear in the New Testament what his role is. Now the readers of the Hebrew uh, of the book of Hebrews were Jewish. And, and they were asking a question that a lot of Gentiles ask today. Is Jesus enough? I mean, is really, is Jesus enough? I mean, we grew up with this system of law and sacrifices and, 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 and now you're telling me that, that Jesus is all that I need? To repent of my sins and believe that His death was payment for me? That was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God. Is Jesus really enough? The answer from the right of Hebrews is a resounding yes! Now, that may seem obvious to you, but just think about the people who were reading this magnificent letter for the very first time. We don't know who the author of, of the book of Hebrews was, but we do know that he was speaking to Jewish Christians, most likely Christians who lived near Rome, who had previously relied so heavily on the law and on sacrifices. I imagine these people made their way to Jerusalem as often as they could on the Day of Atonement, so that they could be there when the when the Lamb was offered once a year for their sins. These people were being persecuted, not only by the Romans for being Jews, I mean, that was enough, but they were being persecuted by their Jewish kinsmen, 
Because they believed in Jesus. And most Jews thought Jesus was a false prophet of the most horrific kind. He was a horrible, horrible person who had led many people astray. So they were being persecuted from every angle. And they were tempted to go back to the law so at least they'd get the Jews off their back. Off their backs. Maybe the Romans are still going to persecute them from being Jews, but at least mom and dad and cousin and uncle and aunt were going to leave them alone. And there was security. There was a measure of comfort in their thoughts, in their minds, in the law. But the writer reminds them they were not secure in the law. In the first 18 verses of Hebrews 10, these readers were reminded that there were flaws in the old system. I mean, verse 3 says, It was never possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That Your guilt remained. It was never going to happen in that system. I mean, even the rituals on the annual Day of Atonement were designed to accentuate human guilt. Everything about the sacrificial system said guilty, Guilty. Guilty. It wasn't possible. It was pointing to something. There was no ultimate forgiveness of sins before Jesus. Now, a little later in this chapter, in, in, in verse 11, the writer reminded his readers that the priests were at the job all day, every day, offering sacrifice for sins, but they never accomplished anything permanent. You know, it's interesting when you think about the setup in the, in the temple. There were no chairs. There were no places for the, for, the, for the priest to sit. You know why? Because the job was never done. They were constantly going back, offering sacrifices for sin, saying, God, please forgive us. We, we recognize that sin requires payment, and this is the payment, the blood of this animal. But, but they never got to sit down. But when Jesus offered his sacrifice, what did he do? After he was resurrected, he went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. The job was done. Completed. Paid in full. It could be translated where we read, it is finished. Done. When we repent of our sins and trust Jesus' death as payment for our sins, we're ushered into the holiest of all places, right into the very presence of God. It was symbolized by the place in the temple known as the Holy of Holies, where once a year the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and offer a blood offering for sin. Once a year he was allowed to go in. And there was great fear in the heart of the high priest as he he went in because he understood what it meant to be in the presence of God. We are so very blessed to stand before God completely cleansed and forgiven of our sins. Our consciences are clean because of Jesus' death. And it's the place that we need to stay in the presence of God with open hearts and with open arms outstretched to Him in praise, in worship, and thanking Him for Jesus You know, it it, it may seem odd to you that these Jewish readers who received this letter were thinking about going back to the bondage of trying to please God by keeping the law and keeping up with those sacrifices year-round. But think about where they've come from. Think about where they were. They were being persecuted for their faith. But they were encouraged 
to persevere in joy, knowing that God is in control. And really, how is it any different that they wanted to go back to where they were comfortable than it is for us? That They wanted to go back to ritual, but we actually participate in the ritual of being at church on Sunday, uh, saying the right things, doing the right things when we're with our religious friends, but then living pretty much as if the Lord doesn't exist the rest of the time. There is a distinct air of warning in the book of Hebrews, both of those who would be legalistic and of those who would live their lives full of license. There's a warning. Don't walk away. Don't walk away from Jesus. In verse 1, we're, we're told that the law was a shadow of the real thing, of a right relationship with God. It's like, like having a, a, a picture of your fiancé. Say you're separated for the six months before your your marriage. And you've got this picture of your fiance and you're looking at the most beautiful woman or the most handsome man in the entire world. And you spend a lot of time looking at this picture. But it's really just an image of, uh, of the person. It's just a reminder. It just points to who the person is. But, but because you're separated, and you don't have the real thing in front of you, you, you appreciate this picture so much. Well, well the, when the day comes when you're finally back together and you're married and you're together all the time, you're not going to spend nearly as much time with that picture. Because you've got a real, breathing, beautiful, handsome individual with great personality whose touch and scent comfort and inspire you. This is a real, living human being. Well, how ridiculous would it be 10, 20, 30 years later to say, I'm leaving you, honey. What? Is there another woman? Is there another man? Uh, no, I'm going to take this picture and go back. I just remember how, how much I loved the way that you looked on this day. And face it, you've aged and, 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 you know, I, the, the, the frame and the matting means so much to me. And you clutch the picture to your, breast and you walk. It's absurd. It is equally absurd for us to say, you know, I just don't know that Jesus is enough, so I better watch my P's and Q's and make sure that I'm saved. If I behave right, He'll save me. Or to say, hey, you know what? We had the ceremony, but I'm going my own way. I'm going to live. You know, I'll put my ring on on Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week don't count on too much for me because I got some living to do and I, and I just can't do it. Jesus cramps my style. Now you wouldn't say that, but emotionally, that's what happens. See, that's what these Jewish believers were considering. They were considering taking the picture and walking away. We're thinking about going back to the law, which was only a shadow of the real thing. The law and everything else in Scripture pointed to Jesus. Like those who were bound to the law, in the same way that they were slaves to a law and to a system that would never completely get the job done, when we continue to dabble in sin and enjoy its pleasures, we're slave to those things that held us before we knew Jesus. And we live like slaves to sin with regrets and guilty consciences. But Jesus has cleansed our consciences. And we are to stand before Him with open hearts 
in open arms. But our text also informs us the way that God has designed us for that to happen in our individual lives is that we be a church with open hearts and open arms to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you, we tend to think in America how everything is all about, uh, it, it's about me and God. No, it's about us and God oftentimes. Oftentimes, the Lord uses the body to bring individual blessing to us. As we've already noted, the, the, the book of Hebrews was, was a letter written to a group of, of Christ followers who were tempted to go back to the law as their means of relating to God. It, it, it is thought that this was a relatively small group, maybe, maybe 15 men and women who followed Jesus that were meeting together. And it just blows my mind that this incredible theological treatise was initially a letter written to 15 or 20 people. To say, don't, don't look back. Don't go back. Just a small gathering. Got the book of Hebrews for the first time. Well, actually, some had stopped meeting with the rest. Some had quit coming, no doubt, because of the persecution that they had, had faced, which, which most likely to that point was verbal and, and maybe vocational, which is a big deal. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Those of you who, who don't have a job right now, you know what it's like not to have a job. Some of these people didn't have a job because they followed Jesus. But they knew more severe persecution was coming. The writer said, you haven't suffered to blood yet. You haven't given your blood yet. But the implication was, it may be coming. And the challenge was to stand strong anyway. Think how very important encouragement was from brothers and sisters in the body. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit is as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I recognize that persecution to the point of death for some is not likely just around the corner for us here in America. But my goodness, how is it possible with everything that is thrown at us from another direction, the sensuality of the age, how is it possible for us to hold fast in our profession without the assistance of our brothers and sisters in Christ? When this entire age says, live for yourself, live for yourself, you deserve it. How can we hold fast our profession and say, Jesus is everything in this universe, as Sean prayed, and as he talked about last week, and over the church And in our individual lives, how can we do that apart from the encouragement that we receive from one another? Martin Luther said this, At home or in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. Now, I would imagine this was written before he was married. Late in life, he married really to make a point to the the Catholic Church. He married this lady, Katie, who had been a nun. And she became the absolute love of his life in the end, which tells us a lot about love. It's a commitment. And if you love like you're supposed to, the emotions, the feelings, they all come. But only if you love like you're supposed to. And if you start off on emotions, 
you know, that's not going to sustain you. But Martin Luther said, at home or in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. I'm so grateful for Luther's honesty. I mean, you might know that he struggled mightily with, 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 with a guilty conscience before he was saved. But then he found salvation through faith in Jesus alone, through his shed blood on the cross. And he also recognized, though, that faith and understanding should live us not only to, to lead lives of open hearts and open arms before the Lord, but open hearts and open arms toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. I suppose one of the reasons that, that people are reluctant to open their arms and their hearts to brothers and sisters is because when you're like this, you're in a vulnerable position. And somebody can take advantage of you very easily when you open yourself up to others. But you're also in a position to give in a way and to support and to build up and to stir others to good works in a way that it's impossible to be when you're like this, you just can't serve with closed arms. You know, we have more than 15 to 20 people meeting here on Sunday mornings as the church that received the letter of Hebrews was. So there are a couple of ways that we, we can apply this, this passage to Grace Community Church. First, we need to be more intentional about interacting with one another on Sunday mornings. One of the ways that we can do that is to arrive early, being intentional about opening our hearts to our brothers and sisters in the, in the body to which we've been called. Most of us, I start to say a lot of us, but, but frankly, most of us get to church at the last minute. And, and, you know, that might not just be because it's church. You may do that at work, other situations. And if there's a traffic jam between Keith Hills and Campbell, you're in big trouble, you know. So that you, you say, oh, no, I should have left early, you know, should have, should have anticipated the traffic. But, but a lot of us are that way. I'm sort of, I tend to be that way, just last minute. You know, I'm, I'm getting there last minute. Um, and, and it's tough to get someplace early. But when we get here last minute, we're often just a little bit late. To the service, and when we are late to the service, we don't have time to interact with our brothers and sisters before we walk right in and start immediately singing. Now, here's the problem with that: when we're singing, we're lifting our hearts, our and our, and our arms to the Lord. Not not figuratively. I mean, not literally. All of us. Some some of us do sometimes. And I, I I hope that you always will, if you feel led of the Lord, that you'll feel comfortable to just raise your arms in worship and praise. It's a, it's a biblical posture to the Lord. But but the problem is, is worship is a group activity. We worship better. Well, I mean, it can be done privately, certainly individually. It should be, but I don't know about you, but it's easier and it's better for me many times to worship. With my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm, I'm, I'm caught up in the moment. And if our hearts are not prayer, prepared, if I haven't interacted with you, if I just walk straight in and sit down and start, start raising my hands, I'm missing some of what God designed. 
or if I walk in and sit at my seat and, and don't interact with anybody else, then same thing is true. I'm missing something that, that God has for me. Far better that we get here 10 to 15 minutes early and interact with one another. And then we get into the sanctuary before the singing begins. And that is extremely difficult for me because I get tied up with people so easily back there. And I keep thinking I'm, I, I've just got to go early and just... Because it's a part of preparing our hearts to worship the Lord. Another way to interact with open hearts and open arms to one another is at the home groups. It's exciting for me to see so many of you planning, even new people. I'm going to get in a home group this year. I want to be in a home group this year. Last week, Sean said that the church is here not to serve you. Your family has been called here to serve the church. And one of the ways that we serve the church, well, the primary way we serve the church is through serving other people. And while we can do that here on Sunday mornings, we can't do it nearly as well as we do at home groups. And there's going to come a time when you're going to need people to serve you. And if you're in a home group, it's already built in. They're going to, they're going to run to your, to your need at that time. In a home group, you're sharing life with those in the body of Christ. The closer you get, the more you open your heart and life to them. And the greater your spiritual growth. Some of you are going to experience this benefit of the body for the first time this year as you get connected with a home group. For others, for those of us who have been at it for a while, it's time that we become a church with open hearts and open arms to those who don't know Jesus. All around this incredible news that we have read today in Hebrews 10, that, that, that the Lord has made a way for us to relate to Him. And when we trust Jesus, we are made His children. And we are ushered right into the very holy of holies, right into His presence. All around this news is the sobering reality that is written. It's a fearful, it's a horrible thing to leave this earth, to leave this life without Jesus. You just don't want to do that. The need to share the gospel is just as urgent in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. God's charge to our body is to share Jesus with those who don't know Him. The tendency for all churches, though, for all churches, is to, to draw inward and raise our, our, our hearts and our arms to God and to one another but then when others come in their midst and come in our midst, the tendency is to go like this. Now, not intentionally, not in a mean-spirited way. It's just that we get in, our, we get in a comfort zone. We get in a, a particular level where we're uh, a place where we're comfortable <clears throat> interacting with others. And so some people come and rarely interact because nobody is reaching out to them. And it's really incumbent upon us. It's, it, the charge is to us to reach out, not to expect them to worm their way in, but for us to reach out to them. It's, it's not an intentional snub. It's just a natural thing to do. How can we, though, sit on the wonderful news that Jesus saves sinners? It's time for us to open our arms 
to the lost. We can do that on Sunday morning by greeting everybody. Of course, a lot of the people that come here for the first time or visitors have been here for two, three, four, five, six times. I see some people coming for months and I, and I don't really see anybody reaching out to them. Some of you have been coming for months and I don't even know who you are. But, but you know, we can, we can correct that. I can't correct it with everybody, but you can correct it with the people who are around you. Just look around you. Do you know the people that are there? Doesn't matter if they're saved or lost. Our responsibility is the same. To, 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 to greet warmly all of those who come in into, into our midst, into our midst. And, and, and sometimes those are going to be people who need Jesus. When they feel comfortable, they're more open to listen. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. It means you're going to have to start. Speaking to people that you don't know. And it's okay. I know you're embarrassed to say, uh, are you new here? Uh, no, I've been coming for a year and a half. I mean, that's embarrassing. I understand that. But look, we got two services. Throw it off on that. You know, say, oh, we must have been in the second. Well, no, I sat right in front of you all summer long. Uh, that would be a little embarrassing. I, I say, But say, please forgive me. I, you know, I should have done this long before. But just reach out to those. But you know what? That's almost like engage, that's engaging the lost almost accidentally. We're called to intentionally seek out those that don't know Jesus. And at the very least, let them hear the good news. We have nothing to do with whether they respond or not. But we have a whole lot to do with whether they hear or not. That's our calling. That's our Responsibilities. One of the best ways to engage your acquaintances who don't know Jesus, whether it's family, friends, neighbors, whoever, is to invite them to your home group. You don't have to act any differently at home group when, when there are visitors there than you do when they're not. I mean, you know, you don't have to look around and say, oh, we can't be open now because we've got new people here. Just, it's quite appealing to those who have not seen such intentional love and caring to, to observe it for the first time in, in, in Jesus. Keep studying the Scriptures. Keep praying and sharing your hearts with people as you've always done. But look, when, when you're trying to bring somebody into your circle, you can't just have open arms to, to your brothers and sisters and say, Oh, you want, you want to come in? Okay. Oh, okay. I mean, you've got to be in, you got to say, oh, hey, hey, come in and make them feel welcome. It's difficult, isn't it? They may laugh at us. They may scorn us. They may mock us. But we need to let them know right up front, whether they come or not, that they're welcome. You know, one of the advantages of bringing a friend to to, to a, a, a home group who doesn't know Jesus is that even if you're fearful about sharing the gospel, and, and many of you, it's just a difficult thing for you to do, there's somebody in your group who's not. And uh, it's not that, you know, you're going to bring them in and they're going to, bam, hit you on the head, right? You know, hit, hit your friend on the head right when they come in. But the, the opportunity is going to be there. When they come into a, an, an environment where they feel like they belong, where they feel like they're accepted and, and that, that other people genuinely care about them, it produces a sense of security that enables a person to think about the claims of Christ. 
That's what we're trying to do at camp all the time. There was insecurity built in because you're away from your surroundings. You're in this new place. You're sleeping in a different place. You're meeting all kinds of people you didn't know before. And yet, there was an acceptance. There was a, 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 a sense of belonging that most people gain when they were at camp. And it happens at every camp just about that's any good at all. Um, people feel that way. It ought to happen at church. It ought to happen in our home groups. It ought to be such that people feel comfortable enough to honestly open their hearts and minds to the claims of Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus? Well, it's going to be spelled out for us as we come to the Lord's table. Drew Peterson, one of our elders, is going to come and lead us in communion this morning. And as the elders uh, come forward, if you would, to uh, lead in communion.